0: You're listening to the New City Church Sermon Podcast. We exist to love God, to love our neighbors, and to make known the good news of Jesus Christ. To this end, we seek to cultivate a spirit-filled, gospel-centered community that multiplies disciples of Jesus and churches for the glory of God, the joy of all people, and the good of the city. If you'd like to learn more about New City, including service times, discipleship pathways, and opportunities to serve and fellowship with us, please visit us online at newcitykc.org. Good morning, New City. How are we doing today? Great. Excellent. I, I feel like uh, maybe I should have all you guys and move over to this side, and I'll just preach to this side, and that'll make things easier. But um, no, we're a little, a little heavy over here on, the, on my right, but um, I'm excited to be here with you guys this second Sunday of Advent as we continue our series entitled The Subversive Power of Christmas this morning by turning our eyes to the opening verses of Matthew's Gospel. Now, for centuries, the church has set aside these weeks leading up to the celebration of Christmas as a season of waiting and preparation and of anticipation and expectancy of what's to come and what we're celebrating. The idea being that we may come to the day of Christ's birth with hearts that are ready to exult in the reality of his coming to us and lives that are reflective of his presence among us. The season of Advent serves like a a detox period where we seek to lay down the myriad things that distract us and take up this good news of this baby born in Bethlehem and all that his birth entails. But the season of Advent also serves to remind us or is reminiscent of the many years and centuries leading up to the first Advent, that first Christmas morning. Years of God's people waiting for deliverance, of preparation for the coming Messiah, of anticipation of what the Lord, or anticipation of the Lord would once again speak to his people, and of expectancy that God's presence would draw near once more and take up residence with his people, and that his kingdom would be renewed on the earth. What we today call the Old Testament ends without a conclusion, See, all the stories that had come before, those of Noah and Abraham, Moses and David, were somehow unfinished, incomplete. But as we've been exploring together these past few months in our sermon series, Jesus in Every Page, there is a thread that runs throughout all of Scripture. Every chapter, every account is a part of this thread, part of this greater story, the story of the coming Son, the one who would set All to write. So when Matthew picked up his pen or quill, I'm not sure what he wrote with, to write, he began by looking back and by recapping the whole Old Testament in 17 verses, in a section which he entitled The Genealogy of Jesus Christ, the Son of David, the Son of Abraham. Now we might look at a passage like this and think, well, this doesn't seem much like a recap. When we hear the word genealogy, we tend to just think of a list of names, and we're going to read some names this morning, or of websites like Ancestry.com, where we can find out if we're related to anyone famous or infamous. Like I'm somehow related to Clara Barton, the founder of the North American Red Cross. I can't remember how. I could ask my mom and get back to you, but... um, but when the ancients, people like the Jewish people of Matthew's day, heard a genealogy, they didn't just hear a list of old and dead relatives, they heard a story. The names of each evoking shared memories that hadn't that had been passed down through generations. So with this in mind, please I want to invite you guys to open your Bibles with me to the first page of the New Testament, to the opening verses of Matthew chapter 1. We'll begin by reading verse 1. And following. <clears throat> the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac was the father of Jacob. And Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And Perez was the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram, and Ram, the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab, the father of Nishan and Neshon the father of Salmon. And Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse was the father of King David. And King David the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat was the father of Joram, And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel. Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel, excuse me, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud. And Abiud the father of Eliakim. And Eliakim the father of Azor. And Azor the father of Zadok. And Zadok the father of Akim. And Akim the father of Eliud. And Eliud the father of Eleazar. And Eleazar the father of Matthan. And Mathan the father of Jacob. And Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to Christ, 14 generations. I told you we're going to read some names this morning. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning... God, and we, we, we read this passage together, Lord, and, and I think for us, it's a lot of names, a lot of people, Lord. And I just pray that you would help us, as we go forward, hear the story behind these names, Lord. Would you speak to us um, as you spoke to the readers of Matthew's readers, Lord? Would, would we hear in this genealogy the story that you are telling, Lord? Would you meet us this morning? Would you strike our hearts with awe and wonder at the unfolding of your plan of redemption, of the son who you were sending, Lord? We just pray, God, that you would meet us this morning, that your spirit would work in our hearts, open our eyes, Lord, that we would hear from you and see you anew. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So J.R.R. Tolkien, who most of you guys know I'm a fan, um, was a lover of language and of antiquity. And he would often weave genealogies into his works of fiction, using them to build a sense of shared story and history for his world Middle-earth and for the characters within. In his book, The Two Towers, there's a character named Aragorn, who most of you are probably familiar with from the movies. And there's a scene where he introduces himself to, to the Eomer and the riders of Rohan, these knights of a foreign land. And he doesn't do so just by giving his name, but by sharing his story or sharing his genealogy. When he introduces himself, he says to them, I am Aragorn, the son of Arathorn. I'm called Alesser Dunedon. I'm the heir of Isildur. Elendil's son of Gondor. See, Aragorn here confronted by people who didn't know him, he identified himself using a partial genealogy by connecting himself to to those in history who would be recognizable. And then he goes further and presents evidence of presenting a sword that had been broken that's been remade. And the movie's got that wrong, but that's beside the point. But giving evidence that this genealogy that he's sharing is true. Well, Matthew likewise introduces Jesus to his audience, which was primarily Jewish in the first century, by connecting him to those in their shared history that would be recognizable. In fact, he constructs this opening passage that we just read very much in keeping with the Hebrew scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures or the Old Testament, following the typical pattern of beginning genealogies with the oldest ancestor, Abraham, and moving forward which is different than his contemporary Luke, who constructed a genealogy of his own, but did so in the Greek fashion and worked from the most recent ancestor backwards. (laughs) But one important way Matthew's genealogy here contrasts those found in the Old Testament is who it's named for. His use of the phrase, the book of the genealogy, is followed not by the name of the most ancient ancestor, but by the most recent descendant. And the point here is significant, Where, whereas in the Old Testament, a genealogy would have been named for his most prominent progenitor, someone like Adam or, or Noah, meaning that their families derive their importance from this shared ancestor. But here, we see the whole line is named for not David, not Abraham, but for their greater son, Jesus Christ and Matthew is asserting, what Matthew's asserting here is that Jesus is upon whom all his ancestors depend for their meaning. Where David had been dependent upon his descent from Judah and Judah from Abraham, and Abraham from Noah, et cetera, et cetera, all the way back to Seth and Adam. In this opening verse, Matthew turns all of that on its head, saying, no, in fact, all of those who came before were not so much descending towards Jesus as crescendoing toward him. As Charles Spurgeon once said, Christ is the great central fact of the world's history, To him, everything looks forward or backward. All lines of history converge upon him. All the great purposes of God culminate in him. The greatest and most momentous fact which the history of the world records is the fact of his birth. Now, Matthew would most certainly agree with the old preacher from London or or more more accurately recognize Spurgeon's agreement with him. For within this passage, he lays out the entire history of Israel. And in calling it the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of God, the son of Abraham, he essentially says that all of it, every name, every event, every miracle, was leading up to this moment, to this birth, to this man. The whole story, in other words, is about him. And even the word in verse 1 that we read in English as genealogy could just as easily and possibly probably more accurately be translated as origin or genesis. And this is most certainly on purpose, as there was another Greek word that Matthew could have used here that was a more common word for genealogy. But instead, he chose to frame this passage as the genesis of Jesus Christ thereby echoing the earliest verses of Scripture and reminding his readers that the birth of Christ was both the realization of all that had come before and it was the seed of a new beginning, of a new creation. Now, none of this is to say that the rest of the contents of this genealogy aren't important just because Jesus is the most prominent, just just the opposite, actually. As I mentioned before, each and every name here would have meant something to the earliest readers of this gospel and would have given them clues as to who Jesus was. Every chapter pointed to him. Just as Aragorn's introduction identified him as the rightful heir and king of Gondor, the heir of Numenor, so Matthew's introduction here goes a long way to identify Jesus. As in verse 1, it says he is the son of David, meaning he's the rightful heir to the throne of Israel and the promise God made to his forefather, which we find in uh, 2 Samuel 7, verse 12, where the prophet, speaking to David, said, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you Your throne shall be established forever. Now, at first blush, this passage in Samuel or 2 Samuel would appear to be about Solomon, who would follow after his father on the throne, who would build the temple in Jerusalem, God's house, and who the Lord would also end up disciplining as he fell into sin. And while this is true, Matthew and the other New Testament authors see in this ancient prophecy the promise of another son, a greater son, who would indeed build a house for the Lord, but a greater house than Solomon built, and whose throne would endure forever. We also see in verse 1 that Jesus is the son of Abraham, an heir to the promises God made to him. Now, why, chase, why trace Jesus' genealogy back to Abraham? After all, he's a descendant of David. He has to be a descendant of Abraham, right? But in so doing, again, Matthew is purposeful. He's reminding his readers of the story of Abraham and the contents of God's promise to him. Look with me at Genesis chapter 22, verses 17 and 18. Here, after Abraham's trial with Isaac, And after God provided another sacrifice in Isaac's place, he said to Abraham, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Just as David would have evoked a memory and hope for the righteous king, for a righteous king and kingdom. The son of Abraham here being referenced here would have reminded them that God's promised blessings are not just for one people or one nation, but all nations. Even the way Matthew structured this opening passage was designed to highlight the singular significance of this event. Look with me at verse now 17. We're going to jump down to the last verse. Here he gives us a window into his intentional layout when he writes, So all the generations, from Abraham to David, were 14. And from David to the deportation of Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation of Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Well, we may look at this and think, well, that's convenient. Or how nice and symmetrical. You know, Fits there really well. Matthew's 14 by 14 by 14 outline was actually constructed using an ancient practice called gematria, or gematria, whereby a number is used to communicate a word. And because the Hebrew language used letters for numerals, the consonant of every Hebrew word added up to a certain number. And the Hebrew consonants for at least one spelling of David was 14. D plus V plus D equals 4 plus 6 plus 4. So one thing that was important as we're thinking about this and we're looking at these 14 by 14 by 14, to bear in mind is this genealogy is not meant to be seen as exhaustive, at least not in the way you and I would think about it today. Names were left off. Matthew crafted this for a message. However, it's not really problematic because rarely in the ancient world were genealogies would they ever contain every ancestor? But instead it would be a selective list like Matthew uses here. Even the Greek verb we see translated as was father of does not necessitate, does not necessitate like a direct relation like me and Liam. I'm the father of Liam. But it was often used to mean something along the lines of was the ancestor of or was the progenitor of. So rather than list every single ancestor he could and by so rather than, excuse me so rather than listing every ancestor he could and putting the generations in a series of 14 from Abraham to David from David to the Babylonian exile and from the Babylonian exile to Jesus in doing this Matthew chose to curate his list in order to further illustrate the story he was telling see the initial readers would have read through this book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ and they would see the name of David come up again and again and again. Matthew wanted them to understand that this isn't just David's descendant or successor, but his fulfillment. He wanted them to understand it where David was a man after God's own heart. In Christ, we're given a man with God's own heart. In every way that David failed, Christ would succeed. In all the ways that David Fell, Christ would stand, and all that David and his ancestors lost, Christ would restore. Hope you guys are with me here. So I want to highlight one more thing about this structure. Uh, one more way we can, one more thing we can glean from the way Matthew laid out this genealogy. Note where the last group of 14 generations begin, after the deportation to Babylon. Why is this important? Why this date? Because this pivot point is where the Hebrew scriptures in Matthew's day ended. Unlike our Old Testament, which ends with Malachi, the last recorded prophet, the Hebrew scriptures were compiled in a different order, same books, different order, and concluded with the scroll of Chronicles what we would call 2 Chronicles. Turn with me to the last chapter of 2 Chronicles, chapter 36, and look with me at verses 15 and following. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them, the people of Judah, by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets, until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people "'until there was no remedy. "'Therefore he brought up against them "'the king of the Chaldeans, "'who killed their young men with the sword,' Um, in the house of their sanctuary and had no compassion on young man or virgin, old man or age. He gave them all into his hand and all the vessels of the house of God, great and small and the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king and all his princes, all these he brought to Babylon and they burned the house of God and broke down the wall of Jerusalem, burned all its palaces with fire, destroyed all its precious vessels. He took into exile In Babylon, those who had escaped the sword and they became servants to him and to his sons until the establishment of the kingdom of Persia to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. All the days that it lay desolate, it kept the Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. Now the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, now in the first year, of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be filled. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may the Lord his God be with him and let him go up. Sorry, that was a lot. But that's how the Hebrew Old Scripture, Old Scriptures, Hebrew Old Testament ended. And if David and his kingdom was the pinnacle of Israel's history, then the conquest of Judah and Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple, the end of the Davidic monarchy, was most certainly its nadir, its low point. And yet, here is where the Hebrew Scriptures end. They include later records like Ezra, Nehemiah, and Malachi, but they end here with the edict of Cyrus to accentuate the reality that even though God had brought them home from Babylon and they had rebuilt a temple in Jerusalem, they were still waiting. In a way, they were still in exile, awaiting their true deliverance. And the old hymn, I think we sang it last week, captures this well. O come, O come, Emmanuel. And ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appear. See, Matthew accentuates this point in Israel's history as a way of saying, yes, we have been waiting, and long has our captivity been, but look, now Israel, he is here. Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the greater son of David, has come to finally set the captives free, to inaugurate his rule and reign. Our exile is over. The king has come, and the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And this theme of Jesus' anointed kingship and his greater kingdom would continue to permeate Matthew's gospel account. From the beginning of his public ministry to countless miracles he performed, through the many parables he taught, all the way to his final words to his disciples before he ascended into heaven, Jesus proclaimed that indeed the kingdom of heaven was now at hand, and all authority in heaven and earth had been given to him amen all right we're working through this genealogy guys okay so jesus is the son of abraham he's the son of david he's the heir to and fulfillment of all the promises throughout the course of scripture okay but what about the rest what about everybody else in this genealogy all the other stories contained in these verses that we read earlier we have far too little time this morning to, to look at the tale of Isaac and Jacob, Asa and Jehoshaphat, Shealtiel and Zerubbabel. But suffice to say, it's a story full of ups and downs, of good and bad, of virtue and vice. Well, actually, now that I think about it, there's, there are really less ups than there are downs in the story there's not nearly as much good as there is bad at times. And, well, virtue rarely seemed to win out over vice. Heck, if we're being honest, David and Abraham who were kind of the paragons of this list. They left something to be desired, didn't they? Not to mention some of the other names we find here. Rehoboam, who managed to split the kingdom of Israel in two after his father Solomon died. Manasseh, who led the kingdom of Judah into all sorts of sordid and idolatrous practices, not the least of which being human sacrifice. And Ammon, who tried to outdo his father Manasseh in evil practices until finally his officials rose up and killed him. But one way or another, all these stories, all these threads led to this moment, the birth of Jesus And at the same time, this moment, the birth of Jesus gave meaning and redeemed everything that came before. All the mess, all the heartache, all the disappointment was caught up in the advent of Jesus Christ. So rather than looking at every detail of this story, which would keep us here all day, possibly into tomorrow, I know there's a Chiefs game coming up, I would like to look at five unusual names on this list. Five people who stand out across the generations. Their names are Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, the wife of Uriah, and Mary. While the inclusion of these five women may not seem striking to us today, just part of the list, it would have been highly unusual in the ancient world. Genealogies of that day were not concerned with mothers, but fathers, because it was through the father's line that inheritance flowed and ancestry was traced. So These five women are noteworthy simply by their presence here on this list. Now, that Mary has a place here is not all that surprising, right? I mean, given the unique role she will play in the unfolding narrative of Jesus' birth, however, the inclusion of the other four is particularly glaring. I mean, Matthew could have easily included Abraham's wife, Sarah, or Isaac's wife, Rebecca, or or, or Jacob's wife, Leah, which still would have been unusual but not necessarily bizarre. After all, they're the great matriarchs of Israel. But these other women, they all bore with them maybe an air of scandal, you might say. A first century reader would not be surprised to find them in Jesus' lineage. After all, they knew the scriptures. But they would have been surprised to see them highlighted in this way, on this genealogy. What was Matthew, why was he here? What was he trying to convey through their inclusion in this genealogy, what do these mothers of Jesus tell us about their son, about his work and his kingdom? I think we can say that where the identification of Jesus with the promises of God to his fathers, David and Abraham, spoke to who he was, these mothers point to what he came to do. Matthew captures within these five stories of these women pictures of Christ's work and of the character of his kingdom. Each of them brings something unique to the story of Christ's redemptive work. Where his lineage was traced through his father's, much of his character and the nature of his mission is revealed in the stories of his mothers. In the story of Tamar, we see the rejected restored. In the story of Rahab, we see the sinner is saved. In the narrative, narrative of Ruth, we see the nations are welcomed in. In the drama of Bathsheba, or in Matthew's words, the wife, the wife of Uriah, we see the abused or taken advantage of made whole. And finally, in Mary's story, we see God's promises fulfilled. So let's look at these five together. We'll begin with Tamar she's interesting. She's one of the more sordid stories in the annals of ancient Israel. See, Judah, the fourth son of Jacob, who was, um, if you remember, was the mind behind selling his brother Joseph. Um, He had gotten Tamar, or gotten's a weird word, but basically he had gotten Tamar as a wife for his oldest son, Er. She was a Canaanite woman. But Er wasn't a good guy. He wasn't a good dude. In fact, Genesis chapter 38 verse 7 tells us that he was wicked in the sight of the Lord and the Lord put him to death. So Judah had her given to his second son, Onan, as was the practice in those days. But Onan also was not a good dude, and he did not want to have children who would carry on his brother's house. And in verse 10 we learn that he too was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. So what's a fellow like Judah to do? Well, he had a third son, Shelah, who was not yet old enough to marry. So he had Tamar return to his father's house and wait for him to come of age. But after what had happened to his first two sons, Judah was afraid to have his last son take Tamar in marriage as if somehow Ur and Onan's demise was her fault. This is where the narrator steps in and says it wasn't And after years went by, though, Tamar realized that Judah was not going to make good on his promise and was going to leave her abandoned without a husband and without children. So when she heard that he was going up to a place called Timnah, we're told that she took off her widow's garments, put on a veil, and sat at the entrance to a place called Anayim. And when Judah saw her, he did not recognize her, but took her or mistook her for a prostitute and said, Come, let me come into you. So it turns out that Judah wasn't really a good dude either. (laughs) But as you can probably guess, a few months later, word came to Judah that his daughter-in-law, whom he discarded, was pregnant. Well, this didn't sit well with him, so he demanded that she be put to death. But Tamar had kept his cord, his signet, and his staff from their encounter, kind of like keeping his license and credit card. And when confronted with these, Judah exclaimed in verse 26, She is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son, Shelah. And from this pregnancy, Tamar gave birth to twin sons, and by the eldest, Perez, does the line of Abraham make its way toward Messiah. Now, this is an unconventional story to be sure, but in Tamar, we see a woman who was rejected by a wicked man and his sons, left to have no family, no heritage. We see her restored, made fruitful, and given a place of honor. It's a weird story, but here she is on this genealogy. And throughout this account, Matthew would continue to demonstrate that Jesus' ministry was full of this recurring gospel motif, as he would minister to those rejected by society, as he would reach out to the poor, to the lepers, to the demon-possessed, and to the women who were so readily overlooked and cast aside in the first century. See, in Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, the rejected are restored. Next, we have Rahab. Here's pro- hers is probably a more familiar story for most of us. She too was a Canaanite woman who lived a few centuries later in the city of Jericho at the time that Joshua was leading the Israelites into the promised land. We find her story in Joshua, in Joshua chapter 2, um, verses 6 and 5. Sorry. We find her story, where is it? Oh, in Joshua chapters 2 and 6. Apologize. We first meet her when Joshua sends two spies into Canaan to sort of scope out the land and see what's there. She hides them in her house and keeps them safe when soldiers and officials from the city come looking for them. And after she had sent the spies away, she came to them and told them that she and all her city had heard of them and of their God and were afraid But where the rest of her people sought to stand against them, or at least hide behind their walls and fortifications, she made a request. In chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, she said, Please swear to me by the Lord that as as I've dealt kindly with you, you will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save me, or save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and deliver our lives from death. And the men of Israel agreed, and they promised that she and her family would be spared the coming judgment upon her people and city. And a few chapters later, we see that Jericho is laid low by the mighty power of God, but Rahab, and her household, are saved. And all this makes for a great story, but what makes it so unusual is that Rahab, this woman whose family was saved from judgment, was a Canaanite for sure. But not only a Canaanite, she was a prostitute. And in that society, that meant that she was almost certainly involved in the cultic religious practices of her day. She was not the prototypical good person, if you will. She lived an immoral life and was a practitioner of the very kind of idolatry that God had called his people to utterly wipe out in the land. That's why that in her story, we see the very heart of the gospel message. We see the sinner saved, not by birthright, not by standing, not by works, but by believing and calling out to the Lord, excuse me, to the Lord, where the rest of her people watched as Israel marched around their city for seven days without so much as crying out. She didn't hesitate. And without even realizing it, in that moment, she threw herself upon the arms of grace. And throughout the rest of his account, Matthew would continue to make this point. The gospel of Jesus Christ isn't for the righteous. It's for the sinner. It isn't for the unrepentant, but the repentant, who, like Rahab, would cry out for God's mercy and forgiveness. Later in his ministry, when the religious leaders would scoff at his disciples. In Matthew 9, we see Jesus' response. Verses 11 and 13, or they ask, or the leaders ask, why does your teacher, in verse 11, eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when Jesus heard it, he responded and it says, those who are well do not need a physician, but those who are sick. Go learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. In the story of Rahab, we have this picture of the gospel, that in Jesus Christ, son of David, the son of Abraham, the sinner is saved. You with me? Okay, what about Ruth? Now, at first glance, the inclusion of Ruth in the genealogy makes sense. After all, her story has its own book in the Old Testament. You know, so she's pretty prominent. Matter of fact, um... Her book closes with a genealogy very similar to what we just read in Matthew. It says, now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashan. Nashan fathered Solomon. Solomon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. And Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. You feel like we just read that? It's because we basically just read that. Her name, this, her name being here, like I said, wouldn't come as a shock. Matthew essentially lifted this part of gene- Jesus' genealogy right from these pages. But what's interesting, I don't know if you noticed, is there were a couple names missing. Matthew added the name of Rahab and added the name of Ruth. So what makes her addition so significant? Well, for starters, she was a Moabite, So like Rahab and Tamar before, she was not a part of the people of Israel. But more than that, being a Moabite, she should never have been included. Canaanites were one thing. They were bad enough. But Moabites, well, just look with me at Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 3, or I'll just read it to you. No Ammonite or Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord, even to the 10th generation, none of them may enter the assembly of the Lord forever. It seems like Ruth's presence on this list, not to mention in the lineage of Messiah, creates a serious problem. But that's Matthew's point. In the story of Ruth, we see that the mission of God has always been bent to include bent towards to include the nations. Even those who had no standing in the nation of Israel, like Ruth, would be welcomed in. Just as Boaz redeemed this Moabite woman, so Jesus would redeem the nations. Just as Ruth was welcomed in to the family of Abraham and became an ancestor of David, so are we welcomed in to the family of God and made co-heirs with Christ. And nowhere is this made more explicit than in the culmination of Matthew's gospel, where in chapter 28, verses 18 through 20, Jesus commended this ongoing mission to his disciples, saying, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of the nations, (laughs) baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always to the end of the age." See, in Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, the nations are welcomed in. The nations are welcomed in. This brings brings us to Bathsheba. Next to Tamar, she may be the most peculiar inclusion on this list, not because of who she is, but because of how she's recorded. That, That Matthew calls her the wife of Uriah speaks to this point he deliberately calls to mind David's cruel and sinful acts. In taking Bathsheba, a woman married to a loyal soldier of his to his bed, and then upon finding out she was pregnant, seeking to cover up what happened, which finally led to him having Uriah, his soldier, killed. So why would Matthew bring up these memories in this genealogy? No one else before him had Bathsheba is mentioned in the story of David and never afterwards. I guess, technically, the very beginning of Solomon's reign. Why not, if you, and also, why not, if he wanted to include her, why not just call her by name? Did he forget it? Why call her Uriah's wife? Because by the inclusion of this story here, and even the way he did it, we see that. The abused and the taken advantage of are made whole. Both Uriah and his wife Bathsheba were played like pawns in this story. When David saw her bathing and sent for her, she would have had little, if any, choice but to come to him. This was not an affair or an adulterous relationship as we would understand it today. This was a king taking advantage of his power and position to sate his own lust. And it's telling that when God sent Nathan the prophet to confront David in Samuel or 2 Samuel 12, Nathan said nothing of Bathsheba, made no allusion to her culpability, but instead in verse 7 said, You are the man. He came to him and said, David, what have you done? You've taken advantage of your position as the Lord's anointed king. You abused your power, both in taking advantage of Bathsheba, but also in having Uriah killed. Turns out that David wasn't really a good dude either. But one thing David did, he pleaded for forgiveness, and believe it or not, God forgave him. He disciplined him, but he forgave him. And when he finally died of old age, it was Solomon the son of Bathsheba, who followed him on the throne. And more importantly, as Matthew brings out in this genealogy, it was from this line, including the wife of Uriah, that Joseph, the husband of Mary, would come. In this story, we see that God does not forsake or forget those who've been taken advantage of. He doesn't turn a blind eye to those who suffered abuse, but he makes them whole. Bathsheba becomes the mother of kings. And Uriah, well, this Hittite soldier is remembered in the great story of the Messiah of Israel, who would would be the savior of the world. And Matthew, along with other gospel writers, would continue to highlight this theme again and again as they show Jesus going not to the rich and the powerful, but to the poor and disenfranchised, spending his time among the sinners and the sick and the hurting of society. In Matthew, in chapter 12, verse 20, in describing Jesus, quotes the prophet Isaiah saying, "'A bruised reed he will not break.'" And a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. And Luke. In the fourth chapter of his gospel, beginning in verse 18, he records that Jesus began his ministry reading from the scroll of the prophet in the synagogue saying, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This is the gospel that in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Son of Abraham, the abused, the taken advantage of are made whole. The broken are healed. The downtrodden are given hope. The poor receive good news, and the slave is set free. And now that finally brings us to Mary. You can imagine how long the sermon would be if we went through everyone. Mary, the mother of Jesus. Look with me at Luke. We're going to jump over Luke chapter 1, verse 26. For Mary's story. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to the city in Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, well, how will this be since I'm a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. In Mary's story, we see the culmination of all other stories. Of all these other stories, all the promises of God find their yes and amen in the birth of her son, Christ Jesus, who was the greater son of David. He was the greater son of Abraham. He was the son. He is the son of God. Beginning in Genesis 3.15, where God promised that one day, The son of Eve would come who would crush the head of the serpent. The whole of the scriptures surges towards this moment. Every chapter, every account, right, is part of this great story. The coming of this son, the one who would set all to rights. In him, the longing of the ages has been fulfilled. In him, the rejected are restored. The sinner is saved. The nations are welcomed in. The abused and taken advantage of are made whole. All the promises of God are fulfilled. I'm going to use J.R. Tolkien one more time. I usually try to avoid doing it twice in one sermon, but couldn't help it. He J.R.R. Tolkien called the birth of Christ the great eucatastrophe of history the sudden happy turn in the story of creation, which pierced the darkness with joy, which rings deeper than truth, with a deeper truth than the human eye can see, and that brings tears of hope to all who hear it. This is the story that the genealogy of Jesus Christ tells us. And it's the good news that we celebrate this Advent season. God himself, the second person of the Trinity, he so loved us that he came and he tabernacled among us. He took on our flesh. He took on our weaknesses. He took on our sin at the cross. And because he has come, even on the darkest days, we may have hope. Amen? And this morning, just as we do every Sunday, we have an opportunity to celebrate this hope that we have in Jesus as we come together to the communion table and partake in the Lord's Supper, to eat of the bread which represents his body, which was broken for us, and to drink of the juice that represents his blood that was shed for us. This table, like Matthew's genealogy, reminds us of Who Christ is and what he has done for us. Here we come to the one who was despised and rejected so that we might be restored. Here we we draw near to the one who took on our sin so that we might be saved. Here we from a distant nation and nations come to the banquet table of the rightful king of Israel, the offspring of Abraham, and are welcomed in as fellow sons and daughters. And here we who have been hurt, wounded, abused, taken advantage of, here we are healed and made whole. Here all who receive him may bear witness that in him, all the promises of God are fulfilled. Let's pray.